Letter seven, part two of A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains by Isabella L. Bird. Part two of Letter seven. You know I have no head and no ankles, and never ought to dream of mountaineering. And had I known that the ascent was a real mountaineering feat, I should not have felt the slightest ambition to perform it. As it is, I am only humiliated by my success, for Jim dragged me up, like a bale of goods, by sheer force of muscle. At the notch the real business of the ascent began. Two thousand feet of solid rock towered above us, four thousand feet of broken rock shelved precipitously below. Smooth granite ribs, with barely foothold, stood out here and there. Melted snow, refrozen several times, presented a more serious obstacle. Many of the rocks were loose, and tumbled down when touched. To me it was a time of extreme terror. I was roped to Jim, but it was of no use. My feet were paralyzed and slipped on the bare rock, and he said it was useless to try to go that way, and we retraced our steps. I wanted to return to the notch, knowing that my incompetence would detain the party, and one of the young men said almost plainly that a woman was a dangerous encumbrance. But the trapper replied shortly that if it were not to take a lady up, he would not go up at all. He went on to explore— and reported that further progress on the correct line of ascent was blocked by ice. And then for two hours we descended, lowering ourselves by our hands from rock to rock along a boulder-strewn sweep of four thousand feet, patched with ice and snow, and perilous from rolling stones. My fatigue and giddiness and pain from bruised ankles and arms half pulled out of their sockets were so great that I should never have gone half-way had not jim nolan's volans dragged me along with the patience and skill and withal a determination that i should ascend the peak which never failed after descending about two thousand feet to avoid the ice we got into a deep ravine with inaccessible sides partly filled with ice and snow and partly with large and small fragments of rock which were constantly giving away rendering the footing very insecure that part to me was two hours of painful and unwilling submission to the inevitable, of trembling, slipping, straining, of smooth ice appearing when it was least expected, and of weak entreaties to be left behind while the others went on. Jim always said that there was no danger, that there was only a short bit ahead, and that I should go up even if he carried me. Slipping and faltering, gasping from the exhausting toil in the rarefied air. With throbbing hearts and panting lungs, we reached the top of the gorge, and squeezed ourselves between two gigantic fragments of rock, by a passage called the Dog's Lift, when I climbed on the shoulders of one man, and then was hauled up. This introduced us by an abrupt turn round the southwest angle of the peak, to a narrow shelf of considerable length, rugged, uneven, and so overhung by the cliff in some places that it is necessary to crouch to pass it all. Above, the peak looks nearly vertical for four hundred feet, 
and below, the most tremendous precipice I have ever seen, descends in one unbroken fall. This is usually considered the most dangerous part of the ascent, but it does not seem so to me, for such foothold as there is, is secure, and one fancies that it is possible to hold on with the hands. But there, and on the final, and to my thinking the worst part of the climb, one slip, and a breathing, thinking, human being would lie three thousand feet below, a shapeless, bloody heap. Ring refused to traverse the ledge, and remained at the lift howling piteously. From thence the view is more magnificent even than that from the notch. At the foot of the precipice below us lay a lovely lake, wood-embossomed, from or near which the bright St. Vrain and other streams take their rise. I thought— how their clear, cold waters, growing turbid in the affluent flats, would heat under the tropic sun, and eventually form part of that great ocean river which renders our far-off islands habitable by impinging on their shores. Snowy ranges, one behind the other, extended to the distant horizon, folding in their wintry embrace the beauties of Middle Park. Pike's Peak, more than one hundred miles off, lifted that vast but shapeless summit which is the landmark of southern colorado there were snow patches snow slashes snow abysses snow forlorn and soiled looking snow pure and dazzling snow glistening above the purple robe of pine worn by all the mountains while away to the east in limitless breadth stretched the green gray of the endless plains Giants everywhere reared their splintered crests. From thence, with a single sweep, the eye takes in a distance of three hundred miles, that distance to the west, north, and south, being made up of mountains ten, eleven, twelve, and thirteen thousand feet in height, dominated by Long's Peak, Gray's Peak, and Pike's Peak, all nearly the height of Mont Blanc. On the plains we trace the rivers by their fringe of cottonwoods to the distant plat, and between us and them lay glories of mountain, canyon, and lake, sleeping in depths of blue and purple most ravishing to the eye. As we crept from the ledge round a horn of rock, I beheld what made me perfectly sick and dizzy to look at, the terminal peak itself, a smooth, cracked face or wall of pink granite, as nearly perpendicular as anything could well be up, which it was possible to climb, well deserving the name of the American Matterhorn. Beginning a footnote. Let no practical mountaineer be allured by my description into the ascent of Long's Peak. Truly terrible as it was to me, to a member of the Alpine Club, it would not be a feat worth performing. End of footnote. Scaling, not climbing, is the correct term for this last ascent. It took one hour to accomplish five hundred feet, pausing for breath every minute or two. The only foothold was in narrow cracks or on minute projections on the granite. To get a toe in these cracks, or here and there on a scarcely obvious projection, while crawling on hands and knees, all the while tortured with thirst and gasping and struggling for breath. This was the climb. But at last the peak was won. A grand, well-defined mountain-top it is, a nearly level acre of boulders, with precipitous sides all round, the one we came up being the only accessible one. 
It was not possible to remain long. One of the young men was seriously alarmed by bleeding from the lungs, and the intense dryness of the day and the rarefication of the air, at a height of nearly fifteen thousand feet, made respiration very painful. There is always water on the peak, but it was frozen as hard as a rock, and the sucking of ice and snow increases thirst. We all suffered severely from the want of water, and the gasping for breath made our mouths and tongues so dry that articulation was difficult, and the speech of all unnatural. From the summit were seen in unrivalled combination all the views which had rejoiced our eyes during the ascent. It was something at last to stand upon the storm-rent crown of this lonely sentinel of the rocky range, on one of the mightiest of the vertebrae of the backbone of the North American continent, and to see the water start for both oceans, uplifted above love and hate and storms of passion calm amidst the eternal silences, fanned by zephyrs, and bathed in living blue, peace rested for the one bright day on the peak, as if it were some region, where falls not rain, or hail, or any snow, or ever wind blows loudly. We placed our names with the date of ascent, in a tin within a crevice, and descended to the ledge, sitting on the smooth granite, getting our feet into cracks and against projections and letting ourselves down by our hands, Jim going before me, so that I might steady my feet against his powerful shoulders. I was no longer giddy, and faced the precipice of thirty-five hundred feet without a shiver. Repassing the ledge and lift, we accomplished the descent through fifteen hundred feet of ice and snow, with many falls and bruises, but no worse mishap and there separated, the young men taking the steepest but most direct way to the notch, with the intention of getting ready for the march home, and Jim and I, what he thought the safer route for me, a descent over boulders for two thousand feet, and then a tremendous ascent to the notch. I had various falls, and once hung by my frock, which caught on a rock, and Jim severed it with his hunting-knife, upon which I fell into a crevice full of soft snow. We were driven lower down the mountains than he had intended by impassable tracks of ice, and the ascent was tremendous. For the last two hundred feet the boulders were of enormous size, and the steepness fearful. Sometimes I drew myself up on hands and knees, sometimes crawled, sometimes Jim pulled me up by my arms or a lariat, and sometimes I stood on his shoulders, or he made steps for me with his feet and hands. But at six we stood on the notch, in the splendor of the sinking sun, all color deepening, all peaks glorifying, all shadows purpling, all peril past. Jim had parted with his brusquerie, when we parted from the students, and was gentle and considerate beyond anything, though I knew that he must be grievously disappointed, both in my courage and strength. Water was an object of earnest desire. My tongue rattled in my mouth, and I could hardly articulate. It is good for one's sympathies to have for once a severe experience of thirst. Truly, there was. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Three times its apparent gleam deceived even the mountaineer's practiced eye, but we found only a foot of glare ice. At last, in a deep hole, he succeeded in breaking the ice, and by putting one's arm far down, 
one could scoop up a little water in one's hand, but it was tormentingly insufficient. With great difficulty and much assistance I recrossed the lava-beds, was carried to the horse and lifted upon him, and when we reached the camping-ground I was lifted off him and laid on the ground wrapped up in blankets, a humiliating termination of a great exploit. The horses were saddled, and the two young men were all ready to start, but Jim quietly said, "'Now, gentlemen, I want a good night's rest, and we shan't stir from here to-night.' I believe they were really glad to have it so, as one of them was quite finished. I retired to my arbor, wrapped myself in a roll of blankets, and was soon asleep. When I woke, the moon was high shining through the silvery branches, whitening the bald peak above, and glittering on the great abyss of snow behind, and pine logs were blazing like a bonfire in the cold still air. My feet were so icy cold that I could not sleep again and getting some blankets to sit on, and making a roll of them for my back, I sat for two hours by the campfire. It was weird and gloriously beautiful. The students were asleep not far off in their blankets, with their feet towards the fire. Ring lay on one side of me with his fine head on my arm, and his master sat smoking, with the fire lighting up the handsome side of his face and except for the tones of our voices, and an occasional crackle and splutter, as a pine-knot blazed up, there was no sound on the mountain-side. The beloved stars of my far-off home were overhead, the plough and pole-star, with their steady light, the glittering Pleiades, looking larger than I ever saw them, and Orion's studded belt, shining gloriously. Once only some wild animals prowled near the camp, when Ring, with one bound, disappeared from my side, and the horses, which were picketed by the stream, broke their lariats, stampeded, and came rushing wildly towards the fire, and it was fully half an hour before they were caught, and quiet was restored. Jim, or Mr. Nugent, as I always scrupulously called him, told stories of his early youth, and of a great sorrow which led him to embark on a lawless and desperate life. His voice trembled, and tears rolled down his cheek. Was it semi-conscious acting, I wondered, or was his dark soul really stirred to its depths by the silence, the beauty, and the memories of youth? We reached Estes Park at noon of the following day. A more successful ascent of the peak was never made, and I would not now exchange my memories of its perfect beauty and extraordinary sublimity— for any other experience of mountaineering in any part of the world. Yesterday snow fell on the summit, and it will be inaccessible for eight months to come. I.L.B. End of Letter 7